Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host Simon Skidmore. As we have dived into the book of Revelation this season, we've seen that the text is primarily about peeling back the appearance of things to reveal that God is still in control, even in the midst of suffering. In our last episode, we saw John caught up in the air and transported into the heavenly realm where he sees a vision of God the Father, Jesus, and those who have overcome temptation ruling over the earth. In this vision, we saw Jesus, the Lamb, who conquers his enemies by refusing to engage in mimetic rivalry. He took a scroll from the hand of God. As we discussed in the last episode, this scroll represents the revelation which we are about to hear. Let's read on now from chapter 6 where the Lamb begins to open the scroll, revealing its contents. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. Then he opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come! And came out another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Then he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The imagery of this sequence of four seals is very interesting from a mimetic perspective. Just as Jesus has encouraged the churches of Asia Minor to overcome temptation, the rider on the white horse sets out to conquer or overcome. However, Notice that unlike Jesus and his followers, this figure conquers through violence, hence the bow with which he kills others. In this way, he too gains a crown of victory in contrast to Jesus, who conquers by refusing to engage in violence. In a narrow sense, this rider represents Caesar, and in a broader sense, all the kings of the earth who desire to defeat and dominate the other kings and nations. This is where the story begins, with this character who desires power and authority at all costs. With his heart fully set on this desired object, all other peoples and nations become mere objects for the rider of the white horse. Of course, the other kings of the earth imitate this rider's desire for power, which draws them into mimetic rivalry with one another as all the kings compete over this same desired object, empire. This mimetic exchange gives rise to the second seal, the rider on the white horse. 
The rider of the white horse represents the exchanging of mimetic violence between nations which culminates in war. Portrayed symbolically as a great sword, war begins to take on its own identity and its mimetic pull draws more and more kings and nations into it. This image of absolute rivalry and violence suggests a mimetic crisis, which is confirmed with the opening of the third seal. John portrays this crisis as a famine. Literature often portray mimetic crises as natural disasters, probably to emphasize the natural yet irresistible and deadly pull of mimetic rivalry. The rider upon the black horse, who comes after the third seal is open, utters prices for wheat and barley and commands the people not to use luxury items such as oil or wine, which might well be done in a time of scarcity or famine. In other words, the death and destruction generated through war brings only poverty and scarcity to the land. The fourth seal introduces a pale or dapple horse who brings death and destruction. Again, we see this rider bringing mimetic crises portrayed through the imagery of natural disaster in the form of famine and pestilence. The wild beasts introduced by this rider to kill people probably represent the machine of empire, which only functions through the instruments of war and oppression. I won't say too much about this now, but we will encounter this same idea of empire as a grotesque beast which kills and misleads the people of the earth in later chapters. In any case, the fourth seal reveals the end of mimetic rivalry, destruction and death. Through the imagery of these four horsemen, John paints a picture of a rival kingdom to the one we saw in previous chapters. While the lamb overcomes, growing and establishing his kingdom by refusing to engage in mimetic rivalry with others, the kings of this earth breed death, destruction and poverty by engaging each other in mimetic violence. Because of this violence, the churches of Asia Minor are currently suffering. Reading on now from verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Then he opened the sixth seal and I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon became blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? The fifth and sixth seal focus on the pain and suffering generated through mimetic rivalry. 
when the Lamb opens the fifth seal, John sees under an altar God's people who have suffered and died at the hands of their oppressors. Let's unpack this image a little. The altar is where sacrifice happens. The people which John sees in his vision have been sacrificed as scapegoats upon the altar. In the midst of the mimetic crisis portrayed through the imagery of the first four seals, everyone within the community are engaging in rivalry with everyone else. Yet, the very imitation which brought the entire community into conflict with one another will also unite them against a communal scapegoat. By persecuting and slaughtering their scapegoat upon the altar of mimetic violence, the community purged their rivalries, restoring peace and order to the community. In his vision, John sees these scapegoats crying out for God to avenge their deaths, much like the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground in Genesis 4. God assures these people that he will eventually put things right, but they will have to wait a little longer, and yes, more people will die. In the meantime, the slain people under the altar are vindicated by God, who gives them white robes signifying their purity and faithfulness. For the churches of Asia Minor who are receiving this revelation, John encourages them to remain steadfast in their faith and follow the example of those who have gone before them so that they too might overcome and be vindicated. Before we move on, just a few comments about the scapegoat's desire for justice expressed in this vision. The people under the altar ask God to judge their plight and put things right. In a sense, he does so by providing vindication in the form of white robes, but full justice has not yet been administered as those dwelling on the earth continue to persecute and scapegoat God's people, and what's worse, they seem to be getting away with it. The imagery of the sixth seal reveals the justice anticipated by the scapegoat martyrs underneath the altar. When the Lamb opens the sixth seal, we see a vision of monumental upheaval. Within apocalyptic literature, moments of such upheaval are commonly portrayed with imagery, that, like what we see here, such as the sun turning black, the moon turning to blood, falling stars, the sky being rolled up as a scroll, the earth being disrupted, and a great earthquake. Through this imagery, John tells us that the tables will be turned as the persecutors run for their own lives. Such is the nature of mimetic violence. As we return the violence exacted upon us, our violence is then returned upon our own heads by another. If we continue to mirror our rivals' violence back to them, this cycle perpetuates, breeding more and more death and destruction. And this is the violence for which the inhabitants of the earth are running from in John's vision. More specifically, the sixth seal portrays the fall of the Roman Empire. Just as Rome destroyed many other peoples, now someone else will imitate Rome's violence back upon their own head. The upheaval experienced by the inhabitants of the earth in John's vision is really just the natural consequence of engaging in mimetic rivalry with others. 
It's interesting that the people of the earth identify the results of their own mimetic violence as the great day of the Lamb's wrath. While he opened the seals to reveal the vision to John, the Lamb is not described as executing justice on the peoples of the earth. So what is going on here? Perhaps the people of the earth have come to appreciate the Lamb's divinity after his death and have attributed their suffering to his divine intervention. According to Girard, after the community purges their mimetic rivalries by executing a scapegoat, they experience peace and calm. The community then attribute this peace and calm to their scapegoat, viewing them as a god who transcends the realm of the dead to grant them peace. The vision of the Lamb in chapter 5 communicated this exact reality. Although the Lamb has been slain, he overcome the realm of the dead through his own death. Now, with the loosening of the sixth seal, we see the peoples of the earth also acknowledge the Lamb's divinity and assume that the violence which has befallen them represents the Lamb's vengeance upon them. Yet, this is just not the case. The people of the earth remain blind to the rivalry which consumes and destroys them. They cannot see that their plight is just a natural consequence of their own decision to engage in rivalry with others. They assume a supernatural explanation for their plight and suppose that the lamb is just like them, exacting vengeance by mirroring their own violence back upon their own heads. Yet, as we saw in the previous chapter, the lamb does not overcome through mimetic violence, but refuses to engage in mimetic rivalry. In desperation, the people of the earth ask, who can stand? Well, in a previous chapter, we saw a lamb standing before God's throne, and we're about to see others that are also able to withstand mimetic rivalry and its fruit. Reading on now from chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those that were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the children of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every nation, and all the peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
and all the angels were standing around the throne and all around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressing me said to me, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where do they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John's vision of a great multitude standing before God's throne answers the question posed by the inhabitants of the earth, who can stand? Answer, this great multitude who John sees standing around the throne. Much like the churches of Asia Minor were called to do in chapters 2 and 3, this great multitude have endured tribulation and overcome by remaining steadfast in their faith. In this way, we are told the multitude have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I believe this imagery is similar to the one we saw earlier where we were told that the Lamb has brought people to God from every tribe, nation and tongue through his blood. The metaphor or imagery here is slightly different, but the message is the same. Jesus' crucifixion opened people's eyes to the mimetic rivalries in which they are entangled. In response, the great multitude make their clothes white by repenting from their mimetic rivalry and God comforts them and provides for their every need. With this beautiful image of God caring and looking after his people, the lamb shepherds the people. In other words, they follow the lamb. They imitate the lamb with whatever he does. And in so doing, they are led to springs of living water. This idea of living water is a life-giving spiritual nourishment which the people can't find any other way. In other words, if the churches of Asia Minor remain steadfast in spite of the persecution they are currently experiencing, they will receive inexplicable blessing which they just won't be able to get any other way. They'll experience God's love and blessing in a powerful and amazing new way. Far from venting his wrath upon the inhabitants of the land, the Lamb sends angels to restrain the catastrophic violence so that they can seal the multitude. In verse 4, John tells us that he hears the number that are sealed, and then in verse 9, he sees a multitude which no one can count. We saw this same pattern in chapter 5 where John hears about the lion, the tribe of Judah, but when he turns, he sees a lamb. 
Now in chapter 7, John hears about the 12 tribes of Israel standing before God's throne. But when he looks, John sees an innumerable multitude from every tribe, people group, and nation on the earth. In other words, John hears about the number of God's beloved people, Israel. But when he lays his eyes upon them, they are not what he might expect. Rather than his beloved Israelite nation, this limited number of people who John was told were God's chosen, God's beloved people, John now sees people of every race and religion standing before the Lamb. John's vision of 144,000 people standing before the Lamb challenges all notions of tribal superiority and rivalry. As a little boy, John was told, we're part of God's chosen people because we're the Israelites, we're descendants of Abraham. We worship the right God in the white way. God loves us in here, in our group, and not all those people out there. But now John receives a vision which says, no, no, no. God's love, God's kingdom is so much more expansive than our little community. Whenever a church or charity or political organization claims that they are the ones who are doing the right thing and the other people outside are wrong, the other people outside are not standing in God's grace or God's favor, we need to be very suspicious. Notice the great multitude wave palm branches in their hands and cry out, salvation belongs to our God. In this vision, the people are going to meet a conquering king who's returning home victorious from battle, just like Caesar's subjects would have welcomed his troops home from battle. Also, Caesar used to claim that he was the savior of the world. So there's a bit of satire, if you like, in this vision. The 144,000 imitate Caesar's subjects in the manner that they receive God as their conquering king. In this way, John shows that God is the true king who has conquered over Caesar. The seven churches of Asia Minor can draw comfort and encouragement from this vision of God conquering Caesar by refusing to wage war with him. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.